0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, two stories from our biology series, Life's Big Leaps, Critical Moments in Evolution. Emily Singer explores two major evolutionary transitions— the development of complex cellular life, and the beginnings of cooperative multicellular entities. First, Mongrel Microbe tests Story of Complex Life, by Emily Singer. In September 2014, Krista Schlepper embarked on an unusual hunting expedition in Slovenia, Instead of seeking the standard quarry of deer or wild boar, Schlepper was in search of Loki archaeota, or Loki, a newly discovered group of organisms first identified near deep-sea vents off the coast of Norway. The simple, single-celled creatures have captured scientists' interest because they are unlike any other organism known to science. They belong to an ancient group of creatures known as archaea, but they seem to share some features with more complex life forms, including us. Though little is known about Loki, scientists hope that it will help to resolve one of biology's biggest mysteries—how life transformed from simple, single-celled organisms to the menagerie of complex life known as eukaryotes, a category that includes everything from yeast to azaleas to elephants. Next to the origins of life, there's probably no bigger mystery in the history of life said John Archibald, an evolutionary biologist at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. The jump from single cells to complex creatures is so puzzling because it represents an enormous evolutionary gulf. How do you make a eukaryote? That's a big question, said Schlepper, a microbiologist at the University of Vienna in Austria. It's a huge transition. Though single celled organisms blanket the earth and are capable of impressive biochemistry, some can eat nuclear waste, for example, their structure and shape remain simple. Cells from animals, plants, and fungi, which make up the eukaryotes, are much more sophisticated. They possess a suite of features lacking in their simpler brethren a nucleus that houses DNA an energy-producing device known as the mitochondrion, and molecular architecture known as the cytoskeleton that controls cell shape and movement. Most biologists agree that, at some point around 2 billion years ago, one featureless cell swallowed another, and the two began to work together as one. But the details of this process, whether this symbiosis jump-started an evolutionary process or whether it happened midway along the path to eukaryotes, continue to drive huge disputes in the field. One group theorizes that eukaryotes emerged in a rapid burst, driven by the acquisition of cellular energy factories known as mitochondria. Others propose a slower, stepwise process. They say that mitochondria couldn't have developed in simple cells. Some level of complexity must have evolved before mitochondria came on board the debate has grown so heated that members of each camp no longer attend the other's conference sessions. Since biologists can't travel back in time, they search surviving life forms for clues. But no detectable intermediates between ancient single-celled life and early eukaryotes exist, making it nearly impossible to reconstruct the order of evolutionary events. When something happens only once, it's hard to grapple with the problem, Archibald said we're left studying the DNA sequence of modern organisms and trying to piece it together. Enter Loki, which some scientists have dubbed a microbial missing link. It is descended from an ancient lineage and is a simple organism with patches of apparent complexity. Genetic analysis places Loki squarely within the single-celled archaea, but it possesses an intriguing collection of genes that look as though they would be more at home in eukaryotes rather like modern words dotting a medieval manuscript. In fact, Loki's genetic machinery suggests that the organism might be able to engulf other cells, the first step in the creation of mitochondria. These genes could have provided a starter kit for eukaryogenesis, the emergence of eukaryotes, said Thijs Etima, a microbiologist at Uppsala University in Sweden, who first described Loki in collaboration with Schlepper in Nature last May. Loki thus outlines a new potential origin story for eukaryotes—one that walks a middle path between the two extremes. Mitochondria may have been born early in the evolution of eukaryotes, but that first mitochondrial host may have already possessed some sophisticated features—most notably, the ability to engulf other cells. It hints that the Loki are stepping stones to eukaryotic complexity, Archibald said. Schlepper, Ettema, and others are now searching for new varieties of Loki, hoping to find some that are even closer to eukaryotes on the evolutionary tree. Schlepper's expedition to Slovenia was part of this ongoing hunt. The trip was successful, though she is reluctant to reveal the details for fear of being scooped. Like a prospector for gold, she has her own secret methods for figuring out the most promising sites for finding Loki. Yet her discoveries are even more precious. They promise to illuminate the mystery of how complex life began. Eukaryotes have a number of innovations compared to their more primitive archaeon ancestors. Most notable among them are the nucleus, which houses vastly more DNA than bacteria and archaea can accommodate, and the mitochondrion, which provides the energy to manufacture the many proteins produced by that genome. Both the nucleus and the mitochondrion reflect a remarkable merger that took place early in eukaryotic life. At some point, an archaeon, or a primitive eukaryote, engulfed a bacterium, developing a symbiotic relationship. Against all odds, the two organisms became irreversibly intertwined. The resident bacterium became more and more dependent on its host cell, surrendering the vast majority of its genes, some of which ended up in the nucleus. The result was a singular development in the history of evolution that birthed the mitochondrion. A single event in 4 billion years of evolution sculpted the whole future evolution of eukaryotes. That's kind of freaky, said Nick Lane, a biochemist at University College London. Chances are that it would go wrong, because the two organisms have to figure out how to get along and to synchronize their life cycles. Exactly how and when mitochondria came on board is one of the biggest controversies surrounding the origin of eukaryotes. Did mitochondria emerge early on, or did eukaryotes develop gradually over time, acquiring mitochondria somewhere along the way? The field really is hung up over the question of whether the bulk of eukaryotic cellular complexity arose before, during, or after the evolution of mitochondria, Archibald said. The debate is so intense that when Ettema began to explore this question, colleagues told him it would be career suicide. The first option, called the Big Bang or mitochondria early theory, predicts that a primitive archaeon engulfed a bacterium, an event that drove the development of eukaryotes. But it's unclear how the archaeon could have picked up that bacterium. Scientists know of only two cases where bacteria live within other bacteria. Eukaryotes, on the other hand, frequently harbor symbiotic bacteria. That's one of the biggest hurdles faced by the mitochondria-first scenario, said Eugene Koonin, an evolutionary biologist at the National Center for Biotechnology Information in Bethesda, Maryland. The second option, sometimes called the Slow Drip or Mitochondria Late Theory, posits that proto-eukaryotes had already begun to develop complex features, particularly the ability to engulf prey, when the mitochondria came on board. According to this theory, the most ancient eukaryotes should lack mitochondria. Evidence once seemed to point towards this option. For example, a number of parasites, such as Giardia, are missing mitochondria. Scientists initially thought that these parasites never had the organelle. But in recent years, it's become clear that these organisms simply lost their mitochondria over the course of evolution. The discovery of Loki opens a sort of middle ground between the two groups. Here is a relatively simple cell that might have the machinery for engulfing bacteria the first step in the creation of mitochondria. Loki has a number of genes typically found in eukaryotes, including genes linked to the dynamic, shape-shifting cytoskeleton. In eukaryotes, these genes enable the cell membrane to change shape. Amoebas, for example, change shape both to move and to engulf prey. This is a very eukaryotic-specific process. And for the first time, we found them in an archaeon, Etima said. This was very exciting. An archaea with these features, such as a cytoskeleton, certainly makes the mitochondria early scenario more palatable than it was before, Kunin said. The Loki discovery comes with one major caveat. So far, no one has ever seen one. Scientists can't yet grow them in the lab. All they can do is isolate their DNA and try to infer what it does. We have to be clear. We don't know what it looks like, Archibald said. Their biology is being pieced together from genomic data. In the world of microbiology, that's not unusual. The vast majority of microbes can't be grown on demand, so scientists study them by analyzing and comparing their DNA. That's what we do in microbiology. We make predictions from genomes, Schlepper said. The Loki for sure have something very special in their membranes. The precise nature of that special something is still unclear. Archibald and others caution that, though Loki has genes that are involved in membrane remodeling in other organisms, no one knows for sure that they perform the same function in Loki. Perhaps they do something different in these simpler organisms and membrane remodeling evolve later. Lane, for one, is unconvinced that Loki can engulf other microbes. Without a mitochondrion, he says, it simply lacks the power. It costs a lot of energy to become large, to move around and engulf and digest cells, Lane said. In modern cells, that process involves 1,000 genes, all of which cost a lot of energy to produce, he said. Schlepper and Ettema are working hard on growing Loki in the lab, but culturing it has proved extremely difficult. The original samples were excavated from the deep sea, where oxygen is scarce and the organism's metabolism is extremely slow. Some estimates predict that the creatures that live there divide only once every 10 years. Moreover, these sediment-dwelling Loki are adapted to the extreme environment at the bottom of the ocean, so bringing them to the surface is likely a death sentence. To get them to survive, you have to be very careful and lucky," Etima said. Fortunately, the researchers have discovered that Loki also inhabits less alien environments and they expect samples from those sources to prove easier to grow. Since their initial discovery, Schlepper and Etima have found that Loki are more common than anyone expected. They have since identified new variants in a number of environments. Hot springs, shallow marine sediments, rivers, even the permafrost. It's like an Easter egg, Etima said. We don't know what we're going to find, but every new genome has something in it. Part of the challenge in finding Loki samples is that they tend to be few in number, a rare figure in local microbial ecosystems. That might explain why they remained undetected for so long. Moreover, Schlepper said, the methods used to survey microbial diversity aren't well-suited to detecting archaea in general. Ettema is optimistic that they will figure out how to grow Loki in the lab, but he cautions that observing live Loki might not resolve the questions about its ancestral abilities present-day Loki, may be very different from the ancient versions that gave rise to eukaryotes. Even if modern Loki can engulf bacteria, that doesn't prove that ancient ones did. It has had two billion years to evolve, a length of time that saw the emergence of humans from single-celled organisms. People overstate a bit what we'll know from culturing it, Etima said. Even if Loki doesn't solve the mystery of our ancient origins— Its discovery shows just how much biological diversity remains to be unearthed. Perhaps the next discovery will be a eukaryote with no history of possessing mitochondria. Or perhaps it will be an archaeon, with signs of a symbiotic bacterium living within. It emphasizes just how much novelty we can find by sequencing the genomes of organisms that can't be grown in the lab, Kunin said. Chances are that more is going to be discovered. Discoveries that can be dramatic and crucial for our understanding of biology. Second, Life's Secrets Sought in a Snowflake by Emily Singer Until one or two billion years ago, life on Earth was limited to a soup of single-celled creatures. Then one fateful day, a lonely cell surrendered solitude for communal living. It developed a chance mutation that made its progeny stick together, eventually giving rise to the first multicellular life. With that simple innovation, a world of possibilities burst open These new organisms were too big to be eaten and their mammoth size allowed them to pull in more food from the environment. Most important, individual cells within the bunch could begin to specialize, taking on new functions such as hunting, eating, and defense. The transition to multicellularity was so successful that it happened over and over again in Earth's evolutionary history, at least 25 times and very likely more. Multicellularity has clear advantages—just look at the menagerie of form and function among animals, plants, and fungi. But scientists have long been puzzled as to how this transformation took place. A true multicellular organism acts as a unit, meaning that each cell must surrender its will to survive as an individual and act to ensure the survival of the larger group. The problem with all the major evolutionary transitions is how Darwinian entities relinquish their individual fitness and become part of a higher-level unit, said Richard Michaud, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Scientists are gaining insight into the process by recreating the evolution of multicellularity in the lab. Using an approach known as experimental evolution, they prod single-celled microbes, such as yeast, algae, or bacteria to develop a multicell form. It's easy to think of these major transitions as a giant leap in evolution. And in some sense, that's true, said Ben Kerr, a biologist at the University of Washington in Seattle and one of the researchers studying major transitions in evolution. But each transition actually involved a series of small advances. The organisms had to evolve effective ways to stick together to cooperate, to divide, and to develop specialized jobs within the greater whole. We're trying to do the opposite of a giant leap. We're trying to break one giant leap for evolution into an understandable series of small steps. William Ratcliffe, a biologist at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and his collaborators, have discovered a surprisingly simple route to multicellularity. A single mutation in yeast that adheres the mother cell to its daughter, to create a snowflake-like shape. These snowflakes grow and divide in a way that provides a clever solution to one of the major pitfalls of multicellularity, the cheater problem, in which lazy cells take advantage of cooperative ones. And while the work hasn't produced a true multicellular organism, the snowflake yeast has shown just how easy it can be for life to take the first step toward a major biological transformation. Ratcliffe began his quest for multicellularity while still a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. Over a series of coffee-fueled conversations, Ratcliffe and his collaborator, Michael Travisano, began brainstorming the coolest experiment we could do, according to Ratcliffe. Tackling the biggest unsolved question in biology, how life first began, was too far out of their wheelhouse, the pair decided, so they settled on the runner-up. How did multicellular creatures evolve? To untangle that transition, the researchers would try to recreate it, converting single-celled yeast into multicellular organisms. Radcliffe and Travisano developed an easy way to force yeast to become multicellular. They grew the microbes in tubes and spun them in a centrifuge once a day. The largest cells, or those that clustered together, sank the fastest. Each day, they selected the fastest sinkers, challenging those cells to another round of the experiment. Over the course of 24 hours, roughly seven generations of yeast, the cells accumulated tens of thousands of mutations. Then, a couple weeks into the experiment, the composition of a few of the tubes suddenly changed. The cells began forming large clusters, and the silky solution of single cells transformed into grainy blobs. Within 100 yeast generations, about two weeks, the population had shifted almost entirely to snowflake yeast. I was gobsmacked, Ratcliffe said. It was unusual, fast, and dramatic. Peering at the solution under the microscope revealed that single cells were now in the minority. We mostly saw these beautiful spherical branch things. While typical yeast divides and disperses after each generation, snowflake cells divide and stick. Daughter cells cling to their mother like baby kangaroos. Mother and daughters then divide again and again, each producing another attached offspring. The evolution of snowflake yeast created more than a mere clump of cells. Wild yeast strains sometimes produce a sticky protein on their surface, which makes the cells adhere to each other. Brewers like this sticky form, known as flock yeast, because it's easier to remove from newly brewed beer. But snowflake yeast is quite different from flocks. Flock yeast cells divide and separate, then condense into a genetically diverse pile. Snowflake yeast grows in highly related clumps. It's this difference that Ratcliffe and others say distinguishes a simple blob of cells from a cohesive unit capable of evolving true multicellularity. Whether snowflake yeast qualifies as truly multicellular or not is a difficult question to answer. There's no clear dividing line between single-celled and multicellular organisms. Ratcliffe likens the transition to what he calls the rich man, poor man problem. If you gathered everyone in the United States and lined them up according to wealth, the richest people will land at one end and the poorest at the other. If you just looked at these extreme ends of the spectrum, it would be easy to define the characteristics of the rich and the poor. But if you drove down the line of people, it would be impossible to define a strict point where the rich group ended and the poor group began. By this analogy, snowflake yeast is in the multicellular middle class. Around Christmas six years ago, Radcliffe slid a photo of his snowflake yeast under the door of a historian colleague who studies the nature of individuality and asked him to identify the individuals. Were they the single cells that made up the snowflakes, or the snowflakes themselves? The historian drew Santa hats on the snowflakes, a tongue-in-cheek method for choosing the multicellular entities. Ratcliffe was trying to get at the question of how to define an individual one of those superficially simple questions that are actually quite complex. And while biologists don't agree on the exact qualifications that designate an individual, they do have a broad set of guidelines. Snowflake yeast satisfies a number of important requirements. First, individual cells within a snowflake appear to sacrifice themselves to benefit the whole. When snowflake yeast reaches a certain size, cells within the clump commit suicide releasing smaller daughter clumps from the parent cluster. It's deeply poetic. The death of individual cells seems to be a direct contributor to the birth of new multicellular organisms, Kerr said. The process illustrates the beginnings of a division of labor within the organism. Individual cells have distinct roles to play, even if their role is simply to die. It's not in the interest of the individual cell. It's shifted interest to a higher level. Snowflake yeast also mirrors the genetic bottleneck that we all go through. Every one of us began as a single cell, a fertilized egg that produced the complex layers of tissue that make up our bodies. Each daughter branch in snowflake yeast is composed of cells that originated from the same parent cell. In both cases, the resulting block of cells is genetically identical, or nearly so. That homogeneity is essential for blocking the spread of cheater cells, the single-celled equivalents of lazy roommates who eat everyone's food but never go shopping or pay the bills. Cheater microbes steal resources from their neighbors and devote all their energy to reproduction, rapidly outnumbering the more industrious cells. Cancer is an example of cheaters within our own bodies, genetically distinct cells that act in their own best interest, endangering the larger entity. In snowflake yeast, the single-cell bottleneck means that cheater cells are stuck with a community of cheaters. The group won't be able to survive on its own. The simplest and most general explanation for why multicellular organisms pass through a single-cell stage is to ensure that all the cells composing the organism are as close to perfectly related to each other as they could be," said Rick Grossberg, an evolutionary biologist at the University of California, Davis. Everyone shares the same genetic interests. The bottleneck forces an alliance. Perhaps the most important argument in favor of snowflake yeast status as a multicellular creature is that natural selection is acting on the snowflake as a whole. In a new set of experiments, Radcliffe's team is pitting snowflake yeast against flock yeast in a head-to-head battle. Preliminary results show that, over and over again, snowflakes drive flocks to extinction. They are evolving in the same way that multicellular organisms are, Ratcliffe said. Selection acts on groups, and the groups respond to selection. Yet snowflake yeast fails one key test of multicellularity—indivisibility. We can't be chopped into smaller parts and maintain the properties of the whole, Michaud said. Snowflake yeast can— Because of this, I think snowflake yeast are not really true multicellular organisms, Michaud said, but they are certainly on their way. The snowflake yeast strains have now been evolving for more than a year, and they continue to change, getting bigger and rounder with each generation and sinking faster than their ancestors. We can see these Darwinian processes playing out in the lab over thousands of generations, Ratcliffe said. The ongoing transition is giving researchers a powerful tool for studying the genetic foundations of multicellularity. Radcliffe has already identified one of the genetic mutations that make it possible for snowflake yeast cells to stick together in their particular way. He hopes to identify additional mutations involved in the switch to multicellularity, which will illuminate the mechanisms underlying the process. Even though snowflake yeast might not directly reveal how multicellularity first evolved on Earth, it should highlight the general evolutionary processes needed to get there. The fact that basic multicellularity is so easy to create is a profound insight, if not a complete insight, Grossberg said. What's more, lab-evolved multicellularity isn't limited to yeast. Scientists can drive other single-celled organisms to multicellularity as well. Ratcliffe and collaborators Matthew Herron and Frank Rosenzweig, both biologists at the University of Montana in Missoula, showed that they can transform the single-celled alga Chlamydomonas reinhardi into a multicellular entity. This is particularly important because one of the criticisms of Ratcliffe's yeast work is that some natural yeasts have multicellular forms, meaning that his experiments might simply be restoring a latent talent. The researchers ran similar experiments to those in yeast, selecting for cells that sink the fastest. But they also employed a selective pressure that algae are more likely to experience in nature. Predators, such as paramecia that can't eat larger multicellular blobs. The predator-driven strains developed a different sort of multicellularity from the gravity-induced versions. These multicellular chlamydomonas have spherical blobs of cells contained within the same cell wall. It's not so surprising that algae came up with different routes to multicellularity. The transformation evolved independently in plants, animals, and fungi dozens of times, maybe more. So there are likely different solutions to the problem of making the transition. What are the suite of possible genetic keys that unlock the door to multicellularity, Rosenzweig said? That's one thing to be gained by comparing different systems. Researchers also want to know how these clusters become more complex, partitioning jobs like a well-run factory. How does a multicellular organism make that next great leap to differentiated cell types that work cooperatively in the organism, Rosenzweig said. Rosenzweig cites an ongoing experiment in his lab with chlamydomonas. Single-celled algae have flagella, tail-like appendages that propel the cell toward light. The multicellular version of chlamydomonas also have flagella, but theirs are trapped and useless inside the larger cell wall. It's like being in a lifeboat and having your oars stuck in the air, not the water, Rosenzweig said. To use their flagella, chlamydomonas will have to evolve ways to get them in the right place and to coordinate their movement. Ratcliffe hopes his snowflake yeast will eventually develop this kind of complexity, Perhaps the mechanism that drives cell suicide will evolve a more sophisticated function. Perhaps given enough time, the new multicellular forms will evolve even more surprising capabilities, just as the transition to multicellularity billions of years ago ushered in a world of large and complex life. One of the reasons the research is so interesting is that it describes the beginning of a bona fide major transition in real time, said Kerr. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast, with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.